Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Mark C. Dugan, MD, about the article, Does Simulation Improve Recognition and Management of Pediatric Septic Shock? And if one simulation is good, is more simulation better? Published in the July 2016 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Dugan works as an attending pediatric intensivist at the Children's Hospital of Nevada at the University Medical Center in Las Vegas, Nevada, and is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Nevada School of Medicine in Las Vegas. Welcome, Mark. Oh, very nice to be here. Before we begin, do you have any disclosures to share? I do not have any disclosures to declare at this time. Okay. Well, simulation has become increasingly popular throughout medical education. Would you give us some background about why you did your particular study? I'd be happy to. When I began preparing to do this simulation project, I really wanted to look at whether or not simulation could be used to assist resident trainees in both identifying and performing well at the recognition and the management of a critically ill child. And when I looked at some of the literature that had been published prior, it seemed like there was a fair amount of literature published surrounding task-oriented items such as uh, the performance of resident trainees and success or not success at lumbar puncture and the performance of various other non-pediatric residents in the identification and the management of various other critical illnesses, such as the management of supraventricular tachycardia, or even in the care of an adult patient with septic shock. However, there hadn't been really any robust studies looking at pediatric septic shock. And with the robust data that had been published recently, looking at both the incidence and prevalence of septic shock, and looking at how we still had a long way to go in terms of meeting our golden hour guidelines. All that sort of put together was what led me to choose pediatric septic shock for my simulation project. How did you do this study? So what we did was we designed a checklist that mirrored the American College of Critical Medicine and Society of Critical Medicine guidelines for the management of pediatric septic shock. And essentially from those guidelines that were published in 2009 that had been pretty well duplicated and uh, disseminated within both the critical care literature as well as it being printed in in nice color on uh, every resident trainee's shiny pals card. We used that to design a checklist and we looked at a bunch of different categories within both the diagnosis, the recognition, and the management of septic shock. And so you'll note on the last page of the article, there's an appendix, and this is the actual checklist as it was given to our validated reviewers. And we validated this, and it went through several iterations uh, before we settled on a final checklist that was both easy for our reviewer to utilize when they were observing the simulation as well as what we felt best mirrored the guidelines and was reasonable for a resident trainee to begin therapy within the first hour of septic shock management. So once we validated that checklist, 
internally, we began our study. And the study was designed to utilize residents that were beginning their third year of their pediatric residency training. And at Emory University and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, pediatric residents within the Emory program complete both of their pediatric ICU rotations within their second year. And so residents that were beginning their third year of training in July of 2013 had completed two months of PICU, but they hadn't had a robust simulation experience as part of their curriculum when they were in the PICU. And so we took that as our control group and administered a simulation experiment. And this was a simulated pediatric septic shock patient. In that case, we used a nine-month-old with septic shock that developed from pneumonia as the primary source. And we ran them through the entire scenario in sort of a simulated golden hour as though the patient had come into the PICU from uh, an outside facility and essentially arrived at time zero with having undergone no workup and no resuscitation as of yet. And so our goals for the resident were to both, number one, identify that the patient was septic, number two, establish intravenous access, and and part of the simulation was that their intravenous line when the patient arrived was uh, no longer functional. Which is pretty much usually how it happens. Correct. (laughs) It's something that we have definitely run into before. And so they were to recognize that the IV was not functional, order an IV to be placed, and begin working their way through the ACCM and SCCM algorithm for pediatric septic shock. And so we divided our categories on our checklist into four different categories. Uh, Number one, monitoring in the basics. So for example, did the resident place monitors on the patient and actually listen to their heart and lungs? Did they ask for other help if it was indicated? Did they correctly diagnose septic shock or not? And in the case of some further, uh, some simulations in the intervention group where the case was modified to have the patient be either showing up in the emergency department or be on the floor, whether or not they correctly identified this patient does not belong here anymore. And then category number two was whether or not they performed adequate support of the patient's airway and breathing. So did they place oxygen? Did they escalate to high flow nasal cannula or some type of non-rebreather device? And then if the patient, or in, in the case of these simulations, when the patient deteriorated, Did they begin adequate bag valve mask ventilation and identify that this patient was uh, no longer going to be supported without mechanical ventilation? In addition, for category number three, whether or not they adequately supported the patient's circulation. So did they uh, establish sufficient intravenous access, in this case, at least two intravenous lines? And if they could not establish a second intravenous line, could they move to an interosseous? Whether or not they appropriately fluid resuscitated the patient. So as we know, the guidelines suggest up to and over 60 milliliters per kilogram of crystalloid resuscitation within the first hour and in a perfect world in the first 15 minutes of the patient's resuscitation. Did they choose the correct inotrope or presser agents as was indicated by whether or not the patient was in warm or cold shock and could they move through that in a timely manner? 
And then the last category was whether or not they performed adequate lab work, imaging, and medication administration as recommended by the Society for Critical Care. So identifying that, particularly in the case of an infant with septic shock, that uh, the possibility of hypoglycemia is high and whether or not they identified that and corrected that. Could they identify based on a blood gas that the patient had a metabolic acidosis and that that was likely from hypoperfusion? Did they at least do a blood culture? And in the case of the patients who in our simulation all had respiratory symptoms, did they perform an x-ray and then did they administer appropriate antimicrobials in that first hour? So that was how we moved our residents through that simulation. So your control group did this simulation at the beginning of their third year of pediatric residency, correct? That's correct. We completed the simulations of all of our control group by the end of their second month of their third year. So this was by the conclusion of August of 2013. And what about the intervention group? The intervention group was the group of uh, second-year pediatric residents who began their rotations through the pediatric ICU in July of 2013. And so at the conclusion of each of their pediatric ICU rotations, we administered their simulation. And what we wanted to assess was whether or not doing multiple simulations, so in this case, a simulation of pediatric septic shock at the conclusion of their first month, a simulation of pediatric septic shock at the conclusion of their second month, and then a simulation of pediatric septic shock at the beginning of their third year of residency after they had already had two simulations thinking that or postulating that these residents that had had multiple simulation exposures or doses, if you will, would perform better when looked at at a similar point in time compared to their peers who were one year senior to them. So what did you find when you compared your intervention and control groups? So the, the first thing we looked at was we, we wanted to assess whether or not our trainees were similar in group, and not just in terms of their demographics, so how old they were, whether or not English was a second language for them, and, and if that was potentially a barrier, but also was the number of weeks between their simulations different, was the amount of time between when they finished their pediatric ICU rotation different from when they performed their final simulation or in the setting of the control group, their first simulation, how many simulation exercises they had been exposed to prior to this study. And then what was most interesting was looking at the number of septic children each of these residents was possibly exposed to during their month. And so we utilized internal data using ICD-9 coding for septic shock to identify how many uh, septic children were cared for in the pediatric ICU during each of these trainees' months of care. And, And we found that there weren't any major statistically significant differences between them. When we then looked at our primary objective, which was simply how well did each trainee score if when looking at the checklist, each item on that checklist is weighted equally as an all or none item. So either you got credit for the item or you did not, and then we totaled up each resident's score. And what we found was that the control groups completed 76% 
of the tasks on the checklist at the conclusion of their single study. Comparatively, the intervention group, when looked at at the beginning of their simulation process, they only completed 69%. And at the conclusion of their multiple simulation doses, they were up to a score of 87%. And that was statistically significant. In addition, we then compared the intervention group within itself. So was there statistically improvement from rotation one to rotation two? And then was there statistically significant improvement from rotation two to rotation three? And we found that there was. So how do you think this applies to our overall training of future pediatricians and perhaps pediatric intensivists? Well, it's, it's interesting that, that you ask that because I think that there are, uh, there are a lot of questions that are, are still left to be answered from this. I, I think when I look at this study and, and the results, I was both surprised at the magnitude of improvement. However, I was surprised in which categories in particular are trainees seemed to perform best at. So, for example, when we looked at some individual tasks within the checklist that we thought were salient to look at, so, for example, the intervention group at the conclusion of this study, 100% of the intervention group could correctly diagnose septic shock when presented with a septic shock patient versus only 78% in the control group. And we thought that that was pretty striking. However, even in the setting where septic shock was maybe not recognized, when you looked at whether or not fluid resuscitation was initiated, so for example, for some of the trainees who believed that the patient had a simple hypovolemic shock from you know, some, some insensible losses, the percentage of residents who performed appropriate fluid resuscitation, and we defined appropriate as a minimum of 60 milliliters per kilogram in that first hour, the intervention group, 100% of them performed appropriate fluid resuscitation even before they had any training. So that was you know, in the very first intervention. Interesting. And so, you know, I believe that an argument can be made whether or not the patient is diagnosed as being possibly septic is important, but I definitely believe and have had this discussion with with many people that if your priority is getting the patient aggressively fluid resuscitated, then it appears that they're already getting that somewhere else in their training, at least at our institution. Now, if you want to drill down and look at whether or not antibiotics were administered correctly, and again, we defined correctly for a patient who came in as previously healthy with no comorbidities, the administration of some third-generation cephalosporin and an antistaphylococcal agent, whether that be vancomycin or linazolid. And although the intervention group initially only had 35% in the task-based performance score for antibiotics, they improved all the way to 83%. And the control group, only 50% of them correctly administered antibiotics. And I do believe that all of us would argue that part of 
know, aggressive septic shock management includes the administration of appropriate antibiotics because of all the literature that suggests that you know, with each hour that you do not administer appropriate antibiotics, that your morbidity and your mortality uh, goes up very significantly. And so when I'm considering how this applies to pediatric residents, I do believe that there is some fine-tuning that we can do to our simulation in, in order to better train them in the recognition of septic shock in particular and maybe worry less about the fluid administration portion, which is both time-consuming and cumbersome to perform in a mannequin. And we actually, in our study, utilized some time warps because our goal was not to make sure that the resident could actually push-pull crystalloid aggressively when they are by themselves in the simulation room, but whether or not they recognize that the patient needed to be aggressively resuscitated or not. And so if that part of their training seems to be already quite robust or ingrained, can we focus more on, okay, what are the correct antibiotics to choose? How do you differentiate between warm and cold shock? And what are your priorities in that first hour of management? Do we have or do you have any data or information as to whether these simulation exercises improve the resident's performance at, at, a, at an actual patient's bedside? We don't. And, and that, that remains really the, the holy grail in terms of transitioning this somewhat artificial environment into the real environment. And we spoke about this a little bit in our discussion. In the 21st century, pediatric subspecialty trainees are becoming more robust. It does seem like anecdotally that resident autonomy is being more and more minimized. And even within the pediatric ICU, particularly at our institution in Emory, where we had robust cadre of fellows that were ubiquitous and always available. And, you know, we would frequently receive phone calls from uh, the floor residents of, hey, I'm worried about this patient. I've already begun aggressively resuscitating them, but can you just come and look at them? And then we would, when we got to the bedside, in some cases when the patient was clearly deteriorating or even worse in extremis, would quickly package the patient up and take them downstairs so that they would be cared for in the ICU. And those trainees that were then on the floor caring for those patients lost that exposure. So, you know, the group at the University of Michigan, they published some literature a few years ago where they looked at a broad-based simulation curriculum and they looked at their pre-simulation curriculum, mortality from cardiopulmonary arrests and their post-simulation curriculum for and uh, resultant mortality in pediatric cardiopulmonary arrest and found a statistically significant difference. And that was um, one of the first major studies that actually looked at, okay, can we translate simulation to bedside performance and improvement? But that all depends on whether or not you believe that that's causation right. or correlation. And, right. and that's very unclear from looking at that. Right, right. What are the limitations of your study? Sure. So the, this study, uh, like uh, many of its uh, kind, is not without its limitations. And, and number one is that although we speak about the use of a high-fidelity simulator 
for those of us within simulation, we know that the ability of a high-fidelity simulator to simulate pediatric septic shock is somewhat limited. And so, for example, our resident checklist included whether or not they identified whether or not the patient was in warm or cold shock. But the extremities on the high-fidelity mannequin don't change in their temperature, and they don't exhibit changes in perfusion, per se. And so this was mitigated by you know, the resident having to perform a bedside assessment and knowing that they needed to ask the facilitator, what does this kid feel like? And so the control group that had not been exposed to many simulations before may not have been able to recognize that these were questions that they needed to ask in order to gather that information. And with certainly uh, some of the feedback that, that they gave saying, oh, well, I, I would have known that the patient was cold because I would have felt them. I'm a little skeptical that that's actually the case, but it's certainly <laughs> good feedback. Absolutely. And and you're right. There's no way to simulate everything that you're going to see in a real patient. And there's a certain amount of interaction from the trainee that has to go on. Right. And, and to that point, you know, when we looked at the number of patients with pediatric septic shock that each of these trainees was exposed to, that was simply administrative data. And so that didn't tell us anything about their actual bedside involvement in the aggressive resuscitation of that patient. And so a resident that was interested in becoming a future pediatric intensivist may have spent hours at that patient's bedside with the fellow who was on call or the attending, aggressively resuscitating and placing invasive lines and being actively involved in the decision-making for that patient. Conversely, a resident who was interested but was involved in the care of a different critically ill patient who was in the intensive care unit at that time, or a resident who was, you know, not on duty the night that that patient came in, that couldn't be pulled out from that administrative data. Right. You can say X number of patients with septic shock came through the unit in that month, but you can't tell whether a given resident had any meaningful involvement in the management of that patient or not. No, not at all. And, and so that was all you know, postulated and certainly in future studies, you know, in terms of translating this to the bedside, I believe that would make for a stronger study in terms of some type of checklist, you know, potentially at the bedside as to, you know, was there a resident present for this resuscitation or, you know, near code event and, you know, how, how involved were they or were they not? In addition, you know, this checklist that we designed for this study, where our primary objective was the number of items completed in that golden hour, this checklist was designed to reward thoroughness and completeness and not necessarily the speed of interventions, uh -huh. nor was the checklist designed to identify items that should be done in a certain order. And so if a resident, for example, gave their first bolus of crystalloid, and then as bolus number two of crystalloid was started, they moved immediately to vasoactive agents because they were worried about the patient's blood pressure and perfusion and continued their fluid resuscitation, that resident was rewarded or credited in the exact same manner as resident number two, who may have performed their fluid resuscitation 
in sequence where they give the first bolus and reassess and give bolus number two and reassess and give bolus number three and then say, okay, well, I guess I should go to, you know, inotropes now. That was rewarded the same way. And so you you can definitely make a case that there are some patients that there is a feeling that this patient needs, you know, inotropes now or people that are aggressive with inotropes or pressors within at first 20 minutes of fluid resuscitation for severe refractory shock. And maybe we should be going to inotropes sooner. Right, right. So where do we go from here? Do you think uh, we should be doing multiple simulation exercises with the residents for other scenarios, other clinical situations? I do. And, and I think that in spite of the limitations of simulation and its utility in translating a critically ill patient's physiology to the bedside, I do believe that it provides residents with a tremendous amount of confidence and experience in a protected environment. And one of the things that I would tell my trainees before doing any type of simulation with them, regardless of whether it was for this study or not, was if the mannequin dies, it's died many times before, and it's going to die again, and that's okay. I'd rather have you make mistakes and learn from those mistakes here than at a patient's bedside where the cost is high. And that's so, absolutely the point. And, and so, you know, I do believe that there there is a role, you know, and then when you combine that with duty hour restrictions uh-huh. and the lack of autonomy that is certainly both published in the literature as well as anecdotally conversed about at some of the various academic meetings, I think there is a tremendous amount of value. I think what remains to be seen is whether or not a simulation can be taken out of the assistance in both crisis resource management, where you're working in a team-building environment and trying to formulate roles within a a team-based structure for, you know, a critically ill patient, and whether you can really translate it into individual performance. And so as pediatrics and some of the other residencies within graduate medical education have moved to a milestone-type assessment in competency, one of the things that is going on within the simulation world is whether or not simulation can be used as a summative assessment or an isolated assessment tool within milestone performance. And and the data that is beginning to emerge from some of the studies shows that I think we still have some work to do, particularly when you look at simulation as it's used as a summative tool as well as simulation when it's used for a very complex scenario like this, such as mm-hmm. you know, pediatric septic shock, or when I look at you know, pediatric traumatic brain injury, where you have multiple different stockholders and multiple different interventions, where it's not really even clear to us as an intensive care community which interventions are superior and at what time. And so until we figure those pieces out, I think simulation is definitely an important tool, but is certainly not the only tool in the toolbox for our trainees. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? I do. I would be 
very remiss if I did not mention my co-fellows and my faculty at Emory who were immensely helpful in completing the simulation project. And so as you can imagine, uh, the number of hours that were spent doing simulation uh, with the residents and validating this tool and really drilling down on what was important and, and what was not to cover was quite time intensive. And uh, without my co-observers and my faculty support, this study would never have gotten off the ground. And in addition, the support of the Emory Pediatric Residency, both at the administrative level and from the residents themselves who were really excited to participate in this, and they seemed to really enjoy their participation and their simulation, and I hope that you know, it was helpful for them. Well, thank you very much for talking with us today, Mark. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. We have been talking today with Dr. Mark Dugan from the Children's Hospital of Nevada in Las Vegas about the article, Does Simulation Improve Recognition and Management of Pediatric Septic Shock? And If One Simulation is Good, Is More Simulation Better? Published in the July 2016 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org membership for more information. Margaret Parker, M.D., M.C.C.M., serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.